discrimination in sounds viewed to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. What could our workplaces look like if we all played an active role in considering our varied needs? I'm director of podcast Taylor Camille, and in this last installment for our Minds Digital Issue, we are in conversation with Ellie Middleton and Dr. Sasha Hamdani, two incredible voices in the neurodivergence community, to explore this question. In this episode, they discuss their personal experiences with ADHD and for Ellie, both ADHD and autism reflect on their journeys to diagnosis, and highlight the importance of self-advocacy and normalizing conversations around neurodivergence both in the workplace and in our everyday lives. As always, please rate and follow the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. And here's Ellie and Dr. Sasha. Hello, I'm Ellie Middleton, and I'm an autistic and ADHD creator, speaker, and writer. And I've just written my first book, Unmasked, The Ultimate Guide to ADHD, Autism, and Neurodivergence, which has been published in two weeks' time, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Sasha? Yeah, hi, I'm Sasha Hamdani. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and ADHD clinical specialist. I'm an author. I wrote Self-Care for People with ADHD that was released this January, and I just came out with my ADHD behavioral management platform called Focus GD, which came out literally a month ago today. Two powerhouse voices in this space, and I'm just excited to be in conversation with both of you at the same time. It's rare that we get schedules aligned to do this, so so grateful. Just wanted to start off with the diagnosis story from each of you. Um, I think especially as women, it can take a long time to get diagnosed. So yeah, Dr. Sasha, if you want to start with you on, you know, how your diagnosis kind of changed your self-perception, if at all, and how it changed how you see yourself in the world. So my, um, I kind of had a weird, weird path in, you know, I, I felt like I displayed symptoms for a while, but it really became more obvious in my schooling in fourth grade. Um, mm. As I, I, I think I presented like a boy. I was just very disruptive. I was really loud and vocal in class. And on a day that I had a substitute teacher, I like got all the other kids to like stage a coup. <laughs> and like we just <laughs> screaming and yelling. And like literally that day, my parents took me to a doctor at the behest of all of my teachers. Um, and my mom is a pediatrician, so was able to kind of get me in quickly. So I was diagnosed and I was started on um, treatment medication at that time. And I don't know how old you guys are, but I am for sure older. But at the time where I was being diagnosed um, and in the cultural community I was at, like it really wasn't talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And so my parents didn't know how to bring that up with me. So, it, you know, they just didn't. This So for years I was just taking this is your vitamin. It's going to help you with school. So I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know I had ADHD. Did okay throughout the rest of my schooling and then got into medical school. And that was the first time in my entire life I'd been by myself. And so Mm -hmm. obviously, 
wheels came off. I just like all of a sudden things became really hard. And my parents were like, are you taking your vitamin? I was like, I honestly don't even know where my vitamin is at this point. (laughs) I don't like, like, no, what vitamin? obviously I am not. And they're like, okay, funny story. (laughs) Um, and so that that's when I found out I, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And to be honest with you, I really didn't believe it. I was under the assumption that ADHD was just for boys and that it was young kids. And I was like, I am an adult. How is this happening? I, I like refused to take medication. I refused anything about ADHD. I didn't want to hear about it. I tried harder than I ever have in my entire life. And what shifted for me that made me decide like this could be a possibility. I, I'm not even kidding. I studied for four days. So I studied as much as I could, but then for four solid days. I I read everything I could about neurobiology. I had a neuroscience test coming up. I did slides. I mean, my whole life was that for four days. I went to the exam. I turned in the exam. I waited for my exam results. I was the bottom of the class. I got a 32, which was like, like there were some people that (laughs) didn't do well, but there was like very bad, way below. And then I was like, what on earth happened? And then I went to the teacher and I was like, I know this stuff. What happened? And then he pointed out the test. I had got 100% on the first side and I forgot to flip over the second, the other page. And I went to him and I was like, this was a stupid mistake. You can test me again. Like, do it orally. I'll do it. And he's like, you need to learn from this. And I couldn't retake it. And I was placed on academic probation and I was so discouraged. And my dad was just like, just come home. Just come home and like, don't worry about school you need to figure out ADHD. And for an entire week, we just sat together and my mom and like, we went to the library, we looked on the internet and both of us like just deep dove into it. And we're like, did you know about this? This sounds exactly like me. What about this? And that's the first time where I was like, okay, this does sound like my brain. And then the rest Mm -hmm. of that journey was trying to figure out like, what the right medication was, what the right behavioral thing was. So I feel like I got diagnosed twice. I think you did get diagnosed twice. And it's interesting to hear you talk about like kind of not wanting to embrace it, being like, no, you're mm-hmm. wrong and couldn't be me. And then Could finally having it. to surrender. Yeah. Could not believe it. Ellie, I don't know if your story is similar or if any of that resonated with you, but would love to hear your journey to diagnosis um, and and kind of the unlearnings that you needed to do. Yeah, I think I'm almost like the opposite end of the scale completely. So I kind of went undiagnosed for a lot of, well, all of my childhood and all of my teenage years. Um, I'd always really struggled with my mental health, but I, I guess I was kind of the opposite in school as well. Instead of being like the disruptive, naughty one, I was always like kind of the teacher's pet, high achieving of like, I finished, can I have some more work? So it was like, I can see now that I was hyperactive, but it was never like problematic because as far as the teachers were concerned, it was a good thing of like, oh, she just wants more to do and she's very enthusiastic in her learning and that kind of side of things. Um, But especially through high school, I'd always really struggled with my mental health, um, really struggled socially. Um, But I'd always been diagnosed as having generalized anxiety disorder. And then I also got diagnosed with panic disorder and agoraphobia and anxiety related depression further down the line as well. Um, So it was like the the struggles were apparent, but they were just given a different reason. Like it was just kind of you're a teenage girl. It's anxiety. It's it's hormones. It's generalized anxiety disorder. So that was kind of the reasons that I'd always been given for what was going on for me. 
And then um, I guess my lowest point was in uh, sixth form, which is like, I don't know, the equivalent in America, but it's the last two years of high school before you're going off to university. Mm. Um, I had to drop out of school because I just became so overwhelmed. I just couldn't leave the house. I was really anxious. I was very tearful. That was kind of the lowest that I got. And then I kept kind of being in cycles after that point of where I'd kind of build myself back up and I'd have six months or so of being like really energetic, really ambitious, like wanting to do everything, wanting to meet everyone, wanting to apply for loads of jobs, all of this stuff. And then every six months or so, I would go back to like the crash and burn of having to quit my job or having to come home from traveling and being really anxious and being really tearful. So that went on like all the way from dropping out of school at 17 to being 23 and I could feel that cycle happening again it's when we were in like lockdowns and the pandemic so I think everyone had a bit more time to reflect about what was going on for them Um, and I was kind of like I could feel this crash and burn on its way to happening again and I was like I know that something else is going on here like anxiety doesn't make sense like I wouldn't still I'd like always taken the antidepressants I was told to take I'd done all the different types of therapy that had been suggested for me I was like a self-help junkie like I literally read like every single self-help book I could get my hands on but no matter what I did every six months I'd go back to the just this like overwhelming kind of crash and burn so I was like something else is going on here but I just I don't know what that thing is um for a while I thought that I had BPD because that was the only explanation I'd seen for women that was like from going from these highs to these lows and this like kind of extreme emotional dysregulation so I kind of that was like the first answer that I came to where I was like I think this might be what's going on like trying to speak to my doctors and saying I think I might have BPD and they were like no that's not it and so I was kind of like still doing the same thing of like they they were just kind of like it's anxiety it's just the way that anxiety presents for you and I was like it's not like I'm not an anxious person I just Mm. I'm always thinking and I get overwhelmed really easily like it's not that I worry about things it's just that my brain is like on a different planet sometimes and then it all just becomes too much and so I was kind of in that that phase and then I was seeing a counsellor at the time through my job because I was like kind of struggling again with my mental health um, and she just asked me the question at one point when we were having a conversation, has it ever been looked into why you take things so literally? And I was like, no, it hasn't. But I think I know what you're hinting at here. So that kind of set me on the path for looking at autism. And then once I kind of discovered the world of like neurodivergence from there, I kind of discovered ADHD as well. And I was like, OK, I think it's one of these things or either of these things. And then maybe it's both of these things. And um, so, yeah, kind of from there went away and. Um, I actually went for my ADHD diagnosis first after I'd done all of that kind of research and just kind of get my hands on any piece of information I could find. Um, ADHD felt like a more tangible one to get diagnosed first because it was like, okay, I can actually get some medication. I can I can actually do something here to to bring myself out of this hole that I can feel myself going into. So I got that diagnosis first um, two years ago yesterday, actually. So it's like exactly two years ago. Um, and then six months later, I got my autism diagnosis as well. So yeah, I was 24 when I got both of my diagnoses. So quite a lot. I mean, there's a lot of women, I think they get them even later in life, but um, still quite far along the journey. I think it's frustrating for me because I was under some, like I was under kind of psychiatric care under the mental health system all the way from being 15. But it was always just mm. given a different reason. Whereas now looking back, I'm like, God, that was so uh, privileged to be under that level of care for such a long time. Like most people can't get an appointment or have to wait for ages to see. I was seeing someone like weekly, but still yeah. because 
I was the way that I was. Nobody was like, hmm, maybe, maybe ADHD or maybe autism is what's going on for you. Like it just kind of never crossed anyone's mind, I guess. Yeah. It's wild that we have to be our own advocates in that way and like be cracking open the books and being like, well, could it be this? And Sasha, if you want to speak on why women are diagnosed later in life and sort of how we can kind of circumvent this with what we know now. Yeah, Ellie, your story, I hear that so often and every single time I'm so frustrated for you. <laughs> um, it's just, it's like the the most invalidating experience to go through and, and to have to suffer in silence and be, I mean, almost gaslit about your symptoms the entire time. So for women, part of why there's a late diagnosis, so just like a little quick statistic from, for men, typically their age of diagnosis is around six. For women, the average age of diagnosis for ADHD is mid-30s. So that mm. is the level of discrepancy. Yeah, yeah, there is a huge, huge gap. Some of the reasons behind that are what Ellie was so eloquently saying in the first place, right? So some of it is the difference in presentation. Typically, typically women present with inattentive symptoms, whereas men present with hyperactive and combined type. So they're the ones just like with my story, I presented more like a boy. You get picked up because you're annoying in class. You are, you're disruptive and you're loud. And the teacher is like, this is, this person is a handful. We got to control this because they're detonating the rest of the class. That's like the typical presentation you think of. And again, there are different nuances and shades, but, but in general, the presentation seemed more acute for males, which is why I was getting picked up as a result mm-hmm. of that. That's kind of the level of training and expertise that a lot of doctors got. That's what they thought about. This is only present in kids. It's present primarily in boys. They don't think of that with girls because if girls are daydreaming or having a hard time in class, they're not impacting anyone but themselves. So they still get passed on through classes. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you know, for women, a lot of their uh, symptomology is highly dependent on hormones, which I don't think people think about. And so when their estrogen drops or changes like premenstrual symptoms with, um, menopause, you know, the joys of being a woman, all these different like (laughs) variations that happen within our hormonal cycle, symptoms get worse. And so Mm -hmm. we have these, these cyclical variations that happen with ADHD symptoms. And so people are immediately like, oh, no, it's not ADHD. You're hormonal. You're emotional. It gets blamed on hormones. It gets blamed on mood stuff. You're depressed. You're anxious. You're bipolar. Those are things that get, you know, shot at patients much more than ADHD because ADHD for a long time was a diagnosis of exclusion. Like everything else didn't fit. And now I think we're thinking about ADHD where I think that model is kind of um, antiquated because just like Ellie was saying, there's such a huge portion of life that you feel like, God, if I had known this sooner, then Mm -hmm. I would have had a much different experience. So I think that's something that we need to start viewing and thinking about right from the get-go. Yeah. A lot of the work that both of you do on social and um, just having these conversations on platforms where people can access this information and kind of help them know more sooner um, is super vital. And so how how are you using those channels to promote and educate and make this information more accessible and basically help people better understand themselves? Yeah, I'll jump in. So 
it was kind of a really weird timing how it all happened for me when so when I first got my diagnosis my ADHD I had just started working at an agency that were doing LinkedIn content for um, like CEOs and founders. So they were encouraging me to start posting on LinkedIn because they wanted us to show that we were good at what we were doing for the clients, right? So I had just literally started posting on LinkedIn. And at the exact same time, I got my ADHD diagnosis, which was just like, oh my goodness, I've got the answer to all of my questions. Like, this is life-changing. Like, I know what's going on. So it was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm being encouraged to, like, post publicly. And I have this thing that I really, really want to talk about. So, like, let's just let's just do the both together. <laughs> um, yeah, and then really, really quickly, um, I think in, like, my first three weeks of posting really on LinkedIn, I had one post that went, like, pretty viral. Um, and so that kind of got me to like having about 10,000 followers, like basically overnight. So it was this combination of like, okay, I've suddenly got people that are interested in what I have to say. And I've suddenly got this one thing that I am like so passionate in talking about and kind of just like run from there with it really. But I think my big thing was like knowing that there must be so many other people out there that were in the same position that I was like a couple of months before of like, knowing that something was different and knowing that life was always harder for them and knowing that they struggled with their mental health and all of these things but just like not quite having the answer as to why that was and it was like okay if I I'd never seen anybody like I didn't know anybody personally that was ADHD or autistic I'd never had people in my classes at school I didn't know any I wasn't following until I like looked into it I wasn't following anyone on socials like I'd not really seen that label being used so I was like if I'd have seen me talking about the things I experienced a year ago I would have been like oh that sounds like me like that that maybe is something that I should look into so it was like if I can just share these are my experiences and these are ADHD it like adds up that thing for people who are like looking for the answers or have been misdiagnosed with something else and, and they can go oh maybe that's something that I should look into too so I think that was like my main thing of like just knowing that I felt so grateful like my me getting my diagnosis was purely out of luck really if that that counselor hadn't have just asked me that one question it turned out that her son was both autistic and ADHD so maybe like she'd been able to kind of see things in our conversations that nobody else had really picked up on before because she obviously knew it so well her son had the same experiences so I felt so like it was a one in a million chance that I had. I could have gone through my whole life never getting diagnosed like I was it happened purely out of chance so it was like I can actually be that chance for other people like the more that I put stuff out there the more that more people are talking publicly about it the more of those like light bulb moments are happening so I think that was my big thing of just like yeah feeling so grateful that I had my answers and wanting to almost be like okay I want everyone else to have the opportunity to find these as well. Sasha what has it been like for you I mean also from like a medical standpoint and I think something I talk about with my friends um it's come up a bit is like the fine line right of like Sometimes people can self-diagnose and be like, I think I have it. And it can be like off of one symptom. And so towing that line of like, no, you should actually go seek medical attention or medical help and not just fully be like, oh, this is me off of a, a TikTok. So a lot of people ask me about self-diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have lots of thoughts on that, I guess. Um, I don't think self-diagnosis is bad. Because I think, like, at the same time, like, I think you are the expert on your own brain. And, like, if mm -hmm. Ellie hadn't, like, absolutely advocated for herself and known, like, this isn't, I think that this is the wrong thing. It's not describing my own internal environment. She knew the entire time. 
So I, I think there is some validity to that. Like you recognize symptoms within yourself that maybe other people can't see or, or can describe or adequately diagnose. I think that is a valid thing. Looking at videos and, and, and finding stuff online and, and seeing relatable content um, as a way of finding words and describing your own internal environment. I don't think that's bad. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a valid experience. I have issues with when you are looking to take a, a step outside of behavioral modification, like if you're looking to treat yourself with medication or things like that, that I think has to be done under the guidance of a medical professional, because that is really nuanced and difficult. And I will tell you from my own medication experience, it, it like when I was on medication, it took me 12 years to figure out kind of exactly what I should be on. And I don't think I was on the right dosage for a majority of my life. And so you would have to kind of understand what's my underlying psychiatric stuff? What's my environmental stuff? What's the right pharmaceutical stuff? And what is my medical condition? And you have right. to tie together all that information. And I think that takes the physician to do that safely. That's where I run into issues when people are trying to self-medicate, because a lot of people, the problem is access to care. A lot mm -hmm. of people don't have that privilege of getting access to care, which is why I make such a big deal about like, I recognize that, man. I, I think that that's a huge problem. And that's kind of why I, I dialed down and tried to do Focus Genie as like, this is how to behaviorally modify. Like if you're trying to improve your life in a way that, that you don't have access to medication, or if you if you don't want medication, if you want a place to start, this is like an easy, accessible way to get there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think self-diagnosis, like if you're hinging it on one symptom, I think that's a little narrow and it's, you know, you might be kind of pulling yourself down a weird rabbit hole. But then again, I also think like going down the rabbit hole might not be a terrible idea because you learn more about yourself. Yeah. There's, there's, there's some good in it and there's some bad in it yeah everything with uh moderation i suppose or yes. or just like extra care so a term that comes up a lot in neurodivergent conversations is masking um and even ellie your new book is called unmask and i think it would be good to kind of define what masking is how it shows up and how even maybe it's used if we think about workplaces um, to kind of survive. Yeah, so masking generally is like very simply covering up your neurodivergent traits to appear more neurotypical. So that's kind of done as like a safety mechanism to survive. It's done as a, like a natural thing, like an unconscious thing as well. So it can be stuff all the way from simple things like forcing eye contact, even though eye contact feels uncomfortable for you because you're told that you have to look people in the eye when they're talking to you. That's the polite thing to do. So that's not a natural behavior for you, but you've learned to do it anyway because you've been told that it's the right way to behave all the way through to things like controlling your body language or mimicking the people around you or talking about certain subjects rather than ones that you are actually interested in because you've learned that if you talk about the thing you're really interested in, then people think you're boring and like say you talk about it too much. So it's basically a whole range of things, but covering up your, your neurodivergent self to appear more neurotypical um, and I think like you say in the workplace I guess everybody to an extent whether they're neurodivergent or not has their work self and their 
home self and their private self um that's something that everybody does right they turn up and they present kind of like their best self at work or they might feel like they're not going to talk about what they did on a Saturday night when they're at work like everyone has it to a certain level but I think the difference is like with neurodivergent folks the extent to what you're covering up and the the drain that it's having on you like it's literally forcing yourself to be and work in ways that are the opposite of the right way for your brain so like yeah for me I guess a lot of my life I didn't realize that I was masking because I didn't know that I was neurodivergent I just knew that I was copying people around me because well that's how people like me more if I behave like other people or that's how I don't get told that I'm being rude if I speak in a certain way it was almost just like avoiding dislike and avoiding trouble rather than actually knowing that I was like covering myself up I guess I think I just thought that I was like oh this is I'm just behaving I'm just learning to behave like that's that's what all I'm doing here but obviously that that wasn't the case um (laughs) but yeah I think it's it's like the extent um the extent that you're doing that so for me I definitely basically just like became whoever I was spending the most time with like going through school if I was friends with a certain group of girls I would just become one of them basically I'd start being interested in the same things and I'd dress in the same way and I'd do my hair and makeup in the same way and I think that was the same at work as like I would turn up at work and I would be Ellie the customer service advisor and it was almost a character that I was playing because I was like oh well that's just what I need to do to survive here and not realizing when I went home at the end of the day and I was like oh my goodness I'm so tired like I literally just need to lie in a dark room and I can't even speak anymore not realizing that everybody else wasn't so drained when they went home from work because I didn't get to see them in the private hours so I didn't know that it was something that I was doing differently to other people um but yeah I guess it's just that overall experience of of covering up either by like mimicking people around you or even like overcompensating so with things like ADHD if you struggle with memory you might have some elaborate system at home where you've got like different timetables everywhere and you've got post-it notes to call over your house and you've got reminders going off in your phone all the time. So from the outside, it's like, oh no, Ellie doesn't have any problems with memory. Like she's never forgotten anything, but it's like you're doing this whole elaborate system to be able to appear that you're the same as other people. Um, So yeah, it's a whole different range of experiences, but something that I guess all neurodivergent people are doing in some form. Yeah. Sasha, do you have anything to add? I think that was honestly beautifully said. I I think one of the most important things to note about masking is that it can be conscious or unconscious. Like there's sometimes where you're doing it without even knowing that you're doing it and you're, you're trying to melt into the environment. And sometimes it's not necessarily even bad. Like that's just an adaptive thing that, that anybody does. Anybody does Mm -hmm. in a situation if they're a little bit uncomfortable or if they're trying to learn the ropes when it becomes problematic is when you're, you know, just using that energy source and you're just like, that becomes the sole focus of the day. When you start to lose your sense of self, and I think that's really scary because I've been in situations before, like in medical school, I feel like I was 40 different people. (laughs) And at the end of the day, like when I was still, I was like, I don't even know who I at my base is anymore. Um, and I think that 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 can be really depressing and hard and it makes you anxious. And it, I, I think to, for me, when, you know, it, you lose you lose sight of what your own personal goals are, what your own personal ethics are, what your own personal drive is. And I think that that 
makes for a very unfulfilling life if you're doing it as consistently as I I know that I was. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times when people are getting misdiagnosed with anxiety and depression, a lot of that is due to that masking. Not a lot of it, Mm -hmm. but it can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're having to operate almost in overdrive of outside of yourself. Something that comes to mind is kind of in these environments, whether it be med school or whether it be places of work, like how can neurotypical people make these spaces more accommodating for neurodivergent people and like embrace their unique needs and maybe create space where you don't feel like you have to mask or slip into something that's far from yourself i think this one like so many people think that accommodating people is so much more complicated than it is. Like I think workplaces avoid doing it because they're like, oh, it's going to be complicated systems and we're going to have to like redesign the whole office and we're going to have to come up with these new complicated policies. And it's like, actually, no, it's so simple. Like all you have to do is like, give me clear instructions. Like, let me have some flexibility if I'm having a bad day to go and take some time away and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <laughs> let me have open conversations about how I'm feeling. So I'm not feeling like I have to, there's that added pressure that, oh, I have to pretend to be okay because otherwise everyone's going to worry about me. Or worry. if I can just say, today's not a good day, I'm going to keep myself to myself today. I'll be back with you properly tomorrow. Like, it is basically just like clarity, communication, flexibility. Um, and it's 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 like simple free things that everybody can do but people mm-hmm. just aren't aware of the difference that they make for people i think um and i think it is just that that general thing of just accepting that like difference is okay just because someone's not doing things the way that they've always been done doesn't mean that they're doing them wrong it just means right. that it's their way of doing things like for me i think one thing that i've learned since getting my adhd diagnosis is that i cannot do like an 8 hour day i can't like i cannot sit at my desk for eight hours I can't I cannot concentrate for that long I if I do I was going home from work and literally having to lie in a dark room struggling to feed myself struggling to shower because it was just too much whereas now I know okay I can do like a two-hour sprint and then I will go out and get some fresh air we'll go to the gym and then I can probably come back and do another two hours in the afternoon but that's it for me but in those Mm -hmm. like two two two-hour chunks I'm probably doing just as much work as everyone else is doing in eight hours because my brain when I'm on it and when I've got the time and space to recover my brain is like a Ferrari like it is so quick and I can focus and do things so good but like in the past that might have been like oh you know she's she's slacking she's not working as hard as everyone else because she's taking time off she's just gone off for a walk in the middle of the day she's gone to the gym where it's like no I'm still I'm still giving you my 100% my 100% just looks different to your 100% and I think yeah that's something that we we need to get better at recognizing that like different doesn't equal bad different just equals different mm-hmm which honestly I'm as you were giving that example I'm like no one should sit at a desk for eight hours like that does not seem that is a lot (laughs) like I don't know how before remote work and before the pandemic I truly don't know how I did it I think some of those times I was at my desk like I'm going to pretend I'm on task because I'm supposed to be on task and I was done like I needed to move on to something else and I think certain things of, of just because it's the nature that we've done it do need to be um kind of reconsidered for sure i also think with workplace accommodations one of the starting points is knowing what you want to ask for because i think that not everybody Mm. in a workplace environment is caught up and and the cultural environment may be different and you might it might be one of those things where they're 
they've never dealt with this before. And, and maybe they're completely willing to accommodate, but they don't know what you need or what. Need. So they're not right. They're not going to be the one offering kind of things. But if you have a clear idea of like, what what would help enhance your work environment or make it more neurodivergent friendly that that's a good place to start because i think a lot of people they you know they think that work should accommodate them which it like in an ideal world yes i mean we should make these these places more just friendly for every type of unique brain wiring but we're not there yet. I think that this mm-hmm. is just becoming more talked about in society. So it falls on us to be able to advocate for ourselves of what we need and what would work better. And for a lot of people, I think they get really anxious about disclosing their ADHD and anxious about mm. talking. And they're like, you know, I don't know what the environment is. I tell my patients who feel that way, like, you don't actually have to. Like, you don't mm. actually have to disclose ADHD even though there is nothing wrong, it's covered by disability, your work should cover it. But if internally you're not at that place where you're ready to disclose it for yourself, you can do things like if if work is just like a really chaotic and busy environment, you're getting really distracted socially. You can go to your boss and say something like, you know, I have noticed that I work best in a more quiet environment. And if I could just use some headphones so that I can kind of mute out some of that noise, I know I'll be able to be more focused on the task at hand. Easy. And that you're not Mm -hmm. disclosing anything. You're just, you're, you're looking proactive. You're looking like you're committed to your work. Like those are kind of things that just working on the verbiage could be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you don't feel like you have to explain your whole, (laughs) everything. No, you can just kind of get to the cut to the chase and just have that addressed and and figure that out. Yeah, that's a good script to give. I want to shift gears and talk about both of your projects because I think they're very cool. Um, Ellie, we can start with you. And I mean, you mentioned it, the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator Program. And I love that story of like, I was just doing this for my company and then it's blossomed into this. So I'd love to hear more about that. And then Dr. Sasha would love to hear more about your app that she mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, I guess it was like a really um, strange, well, divine timing almost of like my my content creator journey started at the exact same time as I got my diagnosis. Um, and I think actually looking back, LinkedIn was a really great platform for me to do that because I didn't have the anxiety as well of it being people that I knew. Like if I'd have been posting on like, I don't know, Instagram, for example, that might have been like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk about this yet because it's all Mm. my friends from school and people from my hometown. Like I don't know if I'm ready. Whereas it was posting to strangers, basically. It was just like shouting into the (laughs) void of like, this is what I found out about myself. So I think that was kind of really good. And then I think as the time's gone on, it's been amazing because I'm in front of people who are making decisions, who are hiring people to talk about these things. So it's led me to do so many cool things, which I probably wouldn't have got the chance to do if I was just posting on other platforms. Like um, I connected with the global head of events from Google and I got to go and speak at Google in New York about how they're making their events more near inclusive. And I've had like loads of different companies reach out to go into their workplaces and talk about it, which has only happened because I'm present on a platform where they're in like work mode, I guess, and I'm in front of decision makers. Um, So I think it's been kind of, yeah, amazing to have the the chance to 
to be in front of those sort of people and just to explore putting content out there because it was very new to me and I think it's kind of wasn't ever the idea to be like oh I would love to be a content creator it was just like oh I want people to hear about this thing that I'm really passionate about too and it's all really grown from there um so yeah it's kind of really wild to think back like the, the day that my book is being published um is two years to the day since that first viral post on LinkedIn so it is literally in the space of two years um from like one post that just like started everything to like okay now it's literally my job to talk about this and I've written a book about this and that's all just from like clicking post one morning um, so <laughs> it's kind of wild to think about um but yeah I guess just having that space to to speak up and to get the message in front of people and to get people thinking about it in terms of themselves personally but also like we've been talking about these conversations in the workplace of just normalizing those conversations and giving like employers the awareness of like oh this may be something that someone in my team like giving them the inspiration as well so it's not always on us to advocate for ourselves mm -hmm. um yeah I think it's just overall been very nice to be able to like share my journey and I think as well like with a lot of people who get diagnosed later in life there's a lot of grief um like Sasha was saying like it could have been very much like you know my life could have been so different if I'd have been diagnosed earlier like I wouldn't have had so many struggles like I had to drop out of school and decline my university offers like I could have been very like angry I could have been really upset about the fact that I missed out on all of that because I didn't get diagnosed younger whereas actually because all this amazing stuff has happened so quickly after my diagnosis I've almost not had the time for that like sure there's there's times where it, I can get caught up in it but it's almost like it feels very cliche but it is like almost everything happens for a reason like I had a really rough time yeah that wasn't good but then the minute that I got my answers the minute that I started being more like publicly myself all of this amazing stuff started to happen so I think like people always say like oh you've helped me on my journey so much I'm like no but this has helped me so much like if I if I didn't have this amazing stuff that's happened since my diagnosis it would have been a very different like it would have still been amazing for me to have like found this stuff out about myself and be able to support myself but it's been a completely different journey because it's like no I, I'm proof almost that like getting those answers and and learning how your brain works and learning how to support yourself and getting proper support and treatment can literally just like change your whole life completely so yeah it's been a, it's been a wild couple of years but very yeah. exciting i'm like happy anniversary yeah. <laughs> it's very very cool to see um and sasha want to talk about focus genie and yeah. where that came from and you know how you hope it supports its users yeah so focus genie um kind of the genesis story behind that was that i when I started on social media and started posting about ADHD and ADHD advocacy stuff, um, I, I mean, I loved that people were coming across me on an algorithm, but I really didn't like, and I still don't like that. It's, it's hard for people to search for information. Like if someone wanted to learn about like, Hey, I'm having some relationship specific difficulties with ADHD. Now you're just like trying to sort through information and you're being fed some good stuff, some bad stuff. So I was like, I wish there was a place where you could get a lot of good, sound, educational information and also pair it with like productivity tools and organizational tools and like just mindfulness tools, stuff that's good for your brain to make your life a little bit easier and more organized. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I thought of Focus Genie. And then I ignored Focus Genie because that was too hard. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I was telling my sister and I was almost like mourning the loss of this idea because I was like, 
it's too big of a job. Like, I don't know anything about apps. I don't know. Like, it's too complicated of a space. And she does not have ADHD. And she's like, this is a good idea. This is pretty much like the culmination of what you wanted to do. Let me help you. And so she kind of helped me with with like the structure and all like the super boring stuff and mm-hmm. and like just really got me on that track. <laughs> all the things where your brain was like, no, thank you. No. Any and like every time where I was like, oh God, this is so hard. I just want to give up. And like I would like go into my rooting TV burrowing phases. Um and she's like, stop it. And then would like get me course correct. So she really is the muscle behind all of this. But basically what has emerged is that we created an app that half of it is educational modules and they're just these little digestible. It's like Instagram swipe throughs. They're just swipe through Mm. modules and they take like a minute to complete. And they're about like actual topics where I feel like people want to know about like, what should I eat? Why is hydration important? What what is a toxic relationship? What like why do I procrastinate? Like actually relatable, applicable stuff. Um, and there and a new module comes about every month. Um, and then I actually delayed releasing it because I was like, you know what? For anybody who is a nerd like me, they're gonna want to read more. And so now it it's linked to actual like journal articles and things that you can actually access through that. Uh, which is cool because I haven't seen that anywhere else. And then the other part of it is, you know, we have a to-do list that um, you get to, like you can, if you don't want to type it, you can voice record into the to-do list. You can do all that stuff. You, it, it, there's a focus tracker, which tracks how, what is your focus like today? What's your impulsivity like? What's your fidgeting like? How much did you eat and drink and sleep? And so all of that goes into personalized insights so you can track your patterns, which I think is really important. Um, there's a mindfulness area where you can journal and you can kind of track your focus, uh, track your answers year over year and see kind of how you're changing. And then all of that is gamified. <laughs> so you earn coins as you're going through because I can't, I will not do anything unless it's incentivized. <laughs> <ever>. <laughs> so I, I want to earn those coins. I want to earn those badges. I want to do all of those things. I mean, at, at its base right now, I think it is, I mean, making an app is really difficult. And there's so like, there are so many places that I want this app to continue to go. But at this point, it's like, at its very baby, less than a month old stage, I'm really proud of it as like a good, a good staple, like a good safe mm-hmm. place where people can learn about ADHD and like access information from a psychiatrist that way and know that they're getting good sound information. They can click on those journal articles. They can do all of that stuff if they want. Yeah. Yeah, definitely really necessary. And congrats to you also. Thank you. I think both of you obviously are doing a lot um, to shape the future of kind of how we accommodate neurodivergence, how we understand neurodivergence. And I wanted to end on just what are both of your hopes and visions, whether it be um, in the workplace or just in the world for, for how we accept neurodivergence in our life? I think my hopes and dreams is that from this increased awareness and this kind of like boom that we've had that and we're again, we're not there yet. We have lots of road left on this journey, 
But I think we're getting closer in that we're talking about it more. I think one of the most important things about talking about it more is taking that additional step. And as a person dealing with ADHD or autism, it's learning about your brain, learning about your patterns, learning about yourself and becoming intimately aware, because I think that reduces a lot of your own internal shame and guilt. I think that the other side of that is that almost, I mean, almost everyone, you know, almost everybody, well, I guess everyone, you know, but like, (laughs) um, (laughs) and like, if you pulled anybody on this planet, I'm sure they know someone, they love someone who has some form of neurodivergence. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important that as a whole and as a society, we, we teach our support architecture and we, we tell other people and we allow them to have that opportunity to educate themselves as well. Because Mm -hmm. I think that that lends to um, more inclusiveness. It lends to more acceptance and it just lends to just a gentler society, right? Because we're not as contentious. We understand that this isn't like, this isn't a volitional thing. I'm not being rude. I'm not being thoughtless. I'm not being like, this is quite literally a neurochemical checkpoint that wasn't being activated. Mm -hmm. So I think that it just makes things move smoothly. Yeah. That's a really good question. I'm really hard. But I think it is just like learning that like, yeah, different doesn't equal bad. Like I think we're just all getting a bit more okay with the fact that not everyone's going to behave like you or work in the same ways that you do or speak in the same ways that you do or be interested in the same ways that you are. I think just getting a little bit better at, at accepting that and just like, yeah, looking at others and seeing their differences and not looking down on those and just being like, okay, they're different to me. That's part of being a human that we're all different I think it's so simple but it just isn't we're not there yet we're not there where we are accepting differences in people we kind of expect people to behave in in one way um and if they don't then we're questioning why so I guess just yeah that kind of that understanding that different doesn't equal bad On today's show, you heard me in conversation with Dr. Sasha Hamdani and Ellie Middleton. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. This episode was produced by Taylor Camille and edited and mastered by Sarah Gabrielli. Special thanks to our production assistant, Charlotte Tratner. Our theme music was created by Madeline Lakomsky and Matt Dinamenico. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette.